0: Will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been, is, and will be greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. So here's my question for us today. How can you and I develop a faith that is essentially fireproof? Given that we live in a fallen world that seems to put us in a number of different furnaces all the time, furnaces go with me, this is an illustration, analogy. Um, given that, how do we develop a faith that is fireproof? Uh, good morning again. Thanks for joining us. I am Justin, one of the pastors here at Riverview. Uh, delighted to be putting in the next installment of our series we're calling Still. Uh, about the Old Testament book of Daniel. The the setting of of this saga is when the exiled Jews are deported. Uh, The powerful and uh, violent Babylonian empire conquers and takes Jerusalem. This is written about 540 years before Jesus. And what we see thus far is that among the deported uh, is a man named Daniel, who the book is named after, and then uh, other prominent characters are his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And at this point, it says that they had found favor with the king, with King Nebuchadnezzar, and they end up being promoted into these uh, important jobs in his administration. They're, They're kind of Babylonian movers and shakers at this point. And chapter three, uh, where we will be today, begins by telling us that King Nebuchadnezzar has, an erected, uh, has erected a 90-foot statue, quick save on that one, uh, 90-foot statue of gold. Your minds are in the gutter, and I'm just wonky in the way that I'm speaking. Hard reset. Okay. Babylon, at this time, I'm going to think about this the whole time. Uh, is uh, the, the capital city of the empire. It's, it's huge. It's a diverse international city. So it's a place where you're going to see slaves, merchants, traders. And so if you want to picture this scene, so this is in, in 3D, you want to picture maybe a big plaza. Like think of uh, Manhattan. Or maybe think outside of a monument in Washington, D.C. And this statue is going to get a dedication ceremony as they put it in place. So all the who's who across the empire, the uh, officials will gather, they'll be there. And everyone is instructed when they hear the national orchestra play, when they hear the music, that they must fall down and worship statue it's not like bringing out a new monument and everybody gets their their selfie in front of it instead when you hear the national anthem in an act of uh, pledging your spiritual allegiance you have to hit the deck now we don't know the details of this statue could have been the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar uh, or or the gods or one of the gods. But what we do know is it represented this nationalistic spirituality in Babylon. And so the idea is the national anthem plays and you bow down to show you're spiritually uh, aligned with Babylon's gods. That's the backdrop. And the thing about this command is that it's so serious that the royal decree says, if you don't comply, things are going to go very poorly for you. This is Daniel 3, 6, and 7. But whoever does not fall down and worship immediately will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. The, the, The furnace will loom large in this story. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every other kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When the band struck up the tomb, everyone, from the slaves to those that are passing through to the government officials, they all hit the deck to show that they are worshiping. This isn't something that they're simply doing because everybody else was doing. Yeah, that was a reason. But the intimidating reason was if you don't do it, you get thrown into the furnace. And this is where the plot thickens. For the Jews that had been deported to the city, if they are going to be faithful, they couldn't join in because their ultimate allegiance is reserved for God alone. And misplaced worship if you think about it, is really the most egregious offense we could think of. Uh, Think about the Ten Commandments, God's top ten. The first two speak to this. Commandment number one, you should have no other gods before me. That is a worship category. Commandment number two, don't make any graven images. Don't deal with any sculpted totems or or crafted idols. Don't, Don't do that because what you'll be doing in that is you're taking what is only fitting for the creator, honor, glory, worship, and praise, and you're giving that to the creation. You can't worship the pagan gods. At best, uh, they're imaginary At worst, they're demonic So any act of false worship is off the table for the Jews Because God's glory is the most sacred thing there is And then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego They are visible, powerful, influential public figures Hiding for them is difficult They have outward-facing jobs And they refuse to bow down They're in public, and they resist. So we're going to show you a picture of what the scene might look like. This is an artist's rendering. Uh, If you have your imagination, go for it. Uh, Can you see the picture there? There we go. Um, They would be the only ones in the crowd standing. Everyone hits the deck. They would stick out by, like, three sore thumbs. And they're doing this out of their reverence God. They are defying authority. They're being civil. Like, they're not starting a riot, not telling everyone what they can and cannot do, uh, but they are being disobedient. This is civil disobedience. Now, um, I I think this raises a very important question for us, especially in our day and age, is how do we think about the practice of of civil disobedience when to and when not to obey authority i want to take a quick detour even though we're going i I give myself if you've come around i give myself one detour one rabbit hole per but i think this is very important because like other politically oriented uh concepts some christians are are wrestling with how to apply this some are losing their mind and doing it on the news and doing it on social media and compelling others to do the same so maybe there's confusion Maybe our thinking in the biblical language has been hijacked by partisanship, so I think we need to examine three views, three historic views on civil disobedience. Positions on whether or not to obey authority, tip of the hat to gotquestions.org. The first view we could describe is the anarchist view, okay? The anarchist view doesn't want the archie. They don't want the structure um, that, that essentially says you can disobey authority, whenever you want, or you can decide not to do it at all. They're skeptical of all hierarchies, especially the government. Okay? And, and if you get into the political philosophy, there actually is some specificity. So if you're like, I respect, okay, you could read more, I could be more generous in this telling, but it boils down that you can't have legitimate authority unless people are consenting and saying, I agree with that. So they don't want a government or a structure or some kind of social arrangement that can coerce people to do something they don't want to do. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. This impulse, though, doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from hyper individualism. Paul in Romans 13 explains that the general architecture of government, though it is fallen, and think about this, he is writing at one of the darkest moments of Roman history, We like democracy, we like our voice Uh, This was not happening In Rome, okay? But what he's saying is though governments are clearly Fallen, they are still instituted By God To give a measure of order uh, Of justice and restraint on sin So, So says Paul Generally speaking, to resist authority Is a secondhand way Of opposing God's command That's Romans 13 You got a problem with that? Take it up with Romans 13 So that's one view The second view is kind of the opposite. Instead of rejecting everything, it's where you reject nothing. And this we could call fanatical patriotism. This is the blind obedience of authority no matter what. Where we naively assume uh, the government or the authority is always right. There's a dog-like Dwight Schrute obedience to everything. And where we assume that there's either no higher authority than the government. Or we assume that God's will is so enmeshed in the government that the government's will is God's will. Governments policy, manifest destiny, oh, that's God's will. Uh, a tragic example of this is the Nuremberg trials. After World War II, um, uh, the Nazis were being charged for their heinous and unspeakable crimes during the Holocaust, and their, their attorneys tried to defend them before the international court by saying they were only following orders. They were only being good patriotic soldiers of their cause, they shouldn't be punished. and the thing that we need to realize is morality and ethics comes from God, not from a nation state, and all nations are like people fallen, so sometimes they command evil, civilian massacres in wartime, slavery, segregation, even various wars for every nation sometimes might be an affront to god's. So the question is, do we have a grid of if and when to resist authority? What if your boss asks you to cook the books, not to report something unethical? What do you do? So we need, as Christians, an alternative between resisting everything, just because I don't agree with it, and resisting nothing because we don't have courage and a moral compass that is independent of where we live. The third category that I am prescribing and that we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is what we might call biblical submission. This is the rare time where we resist a law or a command only if it's in a direct violation of God's mandate. If we are forced to do evil, if we are forced to distort worship, that's the line in the sand. Two quick biblical examples. In Exodus, uh, the Hebrew midwives... They reject and resist the command. They, they refuse to kill male Hebrew babies. They were breaking the law. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Peter and John get arrested for preaching the gospel. And when they're getting released, uh, the condition that the authorities give them is like, we're releasing you on the condition that you don't continue preaching. And Peter is like, sorry, fellas, um, I have to obey God, not man. Man. So, what am I getting at here? Let's land this ship and get back on the track. In the rare cases that compel us, force us to do evil, or force us to distort worship, we are to remain civil and disobey. I am not saying that the church should get into society and try to control it and coerce it to become a Christian theocracy. We just need to know that there's a difference between living in a place where the government allows people to be immoral And then forcing and taking up the charge and acting out that evil ourselves. Hopefully you can dig that, because that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing. They were compelled to be disobedient to God, and for that they had to resist. And as a result of that, the officials in Nebuchadnezzar's court see their disobedience as an opportunity to be malicious. To accuse them They tattle, they run off and they tell him They pay attention to to, to, Not to you and not to the gods These Jewish people do And the king is outraged Threatened, this is the legitimacy of their empire And so he summons them He wants to see this act of disobedience With his own eyes And so he calls them in he says We're going to have a loyalty test right here and now The band is going to strike up the tune You're going to hit the deck Or else you are on fire And I will make an example of you he threatens them, and then he asks the most probing question in the book of Daniel, in my opinion. He says in verse 15, hang on to what's going on here in verse 15. If you don't worship the statue, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. That's the result. Then he asks the question. Here is the question. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Lowercase g. g. Who is the God? I know you guys are doing this for religious reasons. Everybody's got their God. Everybody's got their thing. That's why you're doing it. Who is that God? Lowercase g. Hang on to that question. Who is the God that can rescue his people from the furnace? Who's the God that can rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who is the God that can rescue you and I from the furnaces that we are walking into right now? But before they even have a chance to do the loyalty test, uh, the trio stops them, and they tell them, you know what, that's not even necessary. We don't have to do it. We're not hiding. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you. The king, but get this, verse 18. This is one of the most jarring things I will read or say today, other than the time where I misspoke earlier. <laughs> but even if he does not rescue us, even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know as king that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Earlier in the series, Noel clarified that the, they were not saying to the Babylonians, You must become like us, they were saying to the Babylonians and said, because of our reverence for God, there are some ways we cannot become like you. What this is doing is it's revealing a true and bold faith, Um, and it's so sturdy, it appears to be fireproof. Right, their, their ulti- ultimate allegiance to God uh, shows that they believe specific things about God, not just God as an intellectual idea. You put a lot of people in that situation, and they're like, "Oh, I'm cool. Play the song, man. Play the song. It's just just a gold statue. No big deal. We'll do this." But for them, they definitively have to believe that God is personal, that God sees, that He's powerful that he's compassionate, that he's worthy of praise, that he's everywhere at once, he sees their plight, he cares for them, and all of the other power, even in the short term, the king of the power, the king of the gods, it pales in comparison to him. And because he is ultimately the one we serve, he gets our allegiance. So they respectfully tell the king, I can't serve your gods, I can't bow down to the statue that you set up. His glory is at stake and his glory is so weighty that it's worth more than our lives. You think about this, they had been really compliant, highly trusted people up to this point. Babylonians changed their names. They, took, they renamed them. Those, that, that wasn't their names originally, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Babylonians took their culture so their own names and their own culture wasn't ultimately sacred. They didn't resist that. But when the name of God was messed with, That was the line in the sand. And then jarring verse 18, they say, even if he doesn't deliver, he's still worth it, worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And so this furnace, and I would say the furnaces we face, are ultimately a test of faith. Um, It's a good and bad thing, but it seems the best way to tell if someone has genuine faith is how they respond to bad circumstances. I mean, if I claim only to follow God when things are good, only when things go my way, what does that say? Am I really following God? Is my allegiance to him or is my allegiance to circumstances? Sometimes uh, when when people uh, claim to lose their faith because things fall apart, they'll say something like, I prayed, I trusted, and God let me down. My lover did not come back. Uh, My family member wasn't healed. God, you didn't take the temptation away. You didn't deliver, so I am done with you. If that happens, it just shows we're, we're devoted only to what God can give us, not to God. Even if it's good things. What that shows is our souls are deformed by the logic of the marketplace. It's consumerism. It's spiritual consumerism. You go to God and say, I am a dissatisfied customer. So I'm going to take my spirituality elsewhere. But true faith is rooted in God himself, not what God gives. God, not what God gives. If you go way back in the Old Testament, Job, famously, knew the high highs and the low lows. He says this after losing his family. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good times, bad times, blessed be his name. Can you say that about your life regardless of what is thrown at you? I think this is where it's probably helpful to, to, to put the rubber on the road and think about the furnaces that you and I are facing right now. What stressors, temptations, struggles, setbacks, broken dreams? What what furnaces are you facing? Maybe these are some of the things that you wrote down on the, the prayer cards. Or maybe these are the things that you couldn't even bring yourself to writing down on the prayer cards. Maybe the bills are piling up. The stack of bills is growing as the bank account is shrinking. Maybe your your marriage feels one-sided or worse. Maybe you have health challenges, persistent grief. Maybe uh, your friends, you've had a falling out. Your colleagues reject you. Or maybe your faith has put you in a tight spot. Maybe people reject you because they think that your faith needs to look like their politics. That's a sermon all by itself. But what I'm getting at here is, is the size of your faith dictated by the shape of your circumstances? Like when you're in the furnace, where is God? Is he present or is he absent? Is he asleep at the wheel? Or in faith, maybe we need to think, maybe he's up to something. Um, The little bit that I know about like metallurgy and blacksmithing and making uh, jewelry, think about the jewelry that you have about you right now is that you need to heat it up and you need to beat it up to shape it, right? If you want to make something useful, you want to make something beautiful, you want to polish it, you need a furnace. This text is suggesting that God is a cosmic blacksmith and he's doing some spiritual metallurgy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might believe that, and so they're principled. They love God for who he is, not what he can give them. And it seems that their allegiance to him has actually put them in the heat. And they do this, and the greatest authority in the land goes off the rails. Nebuchadnezzar is raging mad. He orders the furnace to be... Uh, Heated up seven times hotter than it normally is, that's that culture's way of saying. Um, it goes all the way up to 11. Like it's just one louder, right? And if you don't get that spinal tap reference, you should probably leave right now and watch it. Uh, and, or maybe we should pray for you, later. anyways. It goes all the way It's one louder, anyways. Daniel three verse, I think 20, 22, somewhere in there. He says, "Since the king's command was so urgent. And the furnace was extremely hot. The raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he sends his powerful elite soldiers to do this. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound. They were tied up into the furnace of blazing fire. This massive hot furnace raging at 11 kills the soldiers as they presumably push them off of a platform into the furnace. And then off at a vantage point that's not described, probably a platform. If it's a huge furnace, there's probably big air vents to get air breathing through the the whole thing. Um, Nebuchadnezzar looks on with his officials. And he sees something that makes him think he's taking crazy pills. Verse 24 and 5. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? yes of course your majesty they replied to the king he explained look I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods the thick plot gets even thicker the king cannot believe his eyes not only are the men untied they are walking around and they are unharmed and get this There's a fourth man. A fourth man that Nebuchadnezzar describes in his worldview as a son of the gods. Now remember verse 15 from earlier, okay? He asks that defiant question, Who is this little God that can rescue you from my power? I think God has a sense of humor and a spot-on memory. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, you just asked this question. Uh, Well, sir, sit tight, you'll get an answer. Who is this God? Who is this fourth man. Now, there's three options for who this fourth man could be. The first is the least likely, is that this just could be a regular angel. There's a few reasons. I'll go into them in a second. So, could have been a regular angel. Secondly, this could have been a a theophany. Bible nerd word, um, but a theophany is just a manifestation of God. God shows up in a visible way. There's theophanies throughout the Old Testament. God Appears to Moses, he appears to Abraham, he leads the nation in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, right? So that's a theophany God shows up in a tangible way humans can recognize. The third option is that this fourth man was Jesus. That Jesus makes a cameo in the Old Testament. That the pre-incarnate Jesus shows up on the scene before he was born, before he put on flesh, he shows up here. It's kind of like a back to the future kind of thing. He shows up, he gets the cosmic DeLorean, you know, he's got bad hair and big white shoes like Marty McFly, the whole nine, that's a possibility. When Christophanies happen, usually they're described when the angel The singular angel, the angel. God sent his angel, not an angel. Not just one angel, not just, you know, an employee at God Inc., but like the CEO. Undercover boss shows up on the scene. Anyway, Nebuchadnezzar is awed, and he pivots his stance. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approaches the door of the furnace of blazing fire, so he actually comes near the heat and he calls out Shadrach Meshach and Abednego you servants of the how does he re- refer to the deity now most high god come out so the men came out of the fire it's funny that no one else could let them out they just had to climb out themselves now he was probably saving face here uh, but there appears to be a bit of a theological shift a plausible shift you know if Question in, in verse 15, who is this God? Well, it's not the lowercase g anymore. It's recorded as the most high God. They are servants of the most high God, the, the, the big dog, the big one, king of kings, lord of lords, uh, capital, hit caps lock, L-O-R-D, Lord. It's undeniable at this point that Nebuchadnezzar and his gods have been shown up. This is the most high God, a God that is able to see, hear, be present with them, and protect his servants perfectly from the fire in the furnace. Verse 27 and 28. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their head was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God, an instance of biblical civil disobedience. Who is this fourth man? Who is this God that saves? I don't know if you caught it. In Nebuchadnezzar's language, he gets the the most dialogue here. But but he says that that God sent his angel, not an angel. And and then back a few verses, he says, it looks like a son of the gods. The word that he uses that's recorded is Elohim. Elohim is the word for God or gods. It can be used interchangeably depending on the context here. Perhaps unknowingly, Nebuchadnezzar says, it looks like God's son. God sent his angel, I'm of the opinion, and a lot of theologians are of the opinion, doesn't say for certainty, but that this is Jesus himself, and just the Old Testament mind wasn't knowing what they're looking for. That Jesus went into the furnace. That he saved those who gave their allegiance to God, over their own safety, over their own nationalistic spiritual religion, over their king, and not a hair on their head was singed. Now, this dramatic account reveals the power and the personal care of God. It's no wonder why uh, people that have been in the church have heard it. People that often haven't been in the church have heard about this story. So the, the fitting question is, how does this episode so long ago apply to us? How do we get a fireproof faith? Let's come back to that question. Four thoughts for you. To fireproof our faith, I want us to know four things. And I don't want us just to know these things intellectually, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that God exists, but they knew him. And little quick sidebar, the word in Hebrew to know is yadah. And yada can have a connotation to it. Like someone could say, I knew her, sir. I knew her. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That you intimately have contact. That you intimately know something. I want you to know these things. Four things to fireproof our faith. Number one, furnaces reveal and refine faith. Furnaces reveal and refine faith. Um, you, You can't. Purify a precious metal without heat and pressure. God is the ultimate blacksmith, and he's doing metallurgy on our souls. And if we suffer well, if we suffer in faith, with faith, and the thing is everybody suffers, some people don't suffer well. They become more cynical, more bitter, more harsh, more closed off, more sucked into themselves, but some people are softened by it. They're more compassionate. They see other people. They're slower to judge. They're quicker to follow up, to be patient. If we suffer well, God refines us, That the scripture says, like the fire refines gold. Peter does this in the New Testament. He writes to persecuted Christians, and just note the language here. He says, you rejoice in salvation. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, so he's talking about your faith, the character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire. Get it? The connective tissue all along that this refinement of fire may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in another place, we shouldn't be surprised by the fiery trials. That's hard for us as Americans, especially. As if these fiery trials were roadblocks or accidents in our faith. Um, In fact, if we take the Bible seriously, and the sovereignty of God as a thing, like it's a thing, then the furnaces that we walk into are not accidents. They are divinely ordained opportunities for God to shape us, to form us. These are his episodes to help us see the big picture, to focus on what matters, to have character, to develop a resilience, a stronger faith, and then lead us to point two to glorify Jesus. To fireproof your faith, know that furnaces glorify Jesus. They glorify God suffering is the clearest way to display our allegiance and our faith that he is better that he is worth it imagine daniel 3 without the decree without the furnace if if nebuchadnezzar is like i'm going to make a statue let's just go look at the craftsmanship and come out and sing a tune and have snow cones this is not a hot take if that happens but they needed the furnace they needed the furnace for the Christophany. They needed the furnace to show where the allegiance lies for God to show up and to reveal himself. Sometimes the furnace is how we're going to glorify Jesus like fine jewelry. One day we will all shine brilliantly. But we're not going to arrive painlessly. We're going to be tested. We're going to be tried. We're going to feel rejected. Uh, we're going to lose favor. We're going to lose relationships. We're going to miss out on pleasure. If we do it right, we're not going to hashtag live our best lives now. Because Jesus didn't live his best life now. And we're going to struggle. We're going to, we're going to fight to count it all as joy. Because a watching world is looking on for us to see that Jesus is better. That Jesus is worth it. That I can be in a furnace and I'm still okay. That my soul hasn't been singed. This means that our suffering is, is not for nothing. It means our suffering is for someone. And, and I could say that since I've been on the clock here at Riv in the decade-ish or so that I've been here, God's people have spurred me on time and time again. I've done funerals. I've cried with some of you. Some of you have told me about your pain, uh, your guilt, your shame, your suffering. I look around this room. I don't want to make eye contact right now because I'm going to get choked up and won't finish. But I have seen you. I have seen you go through stuff, and you're like, blessed be his name. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Oh, blessed be his name. And I'm like, yeah, I can't bail. They can't bail. My brother, my sister, they have taught me something. The furnaces glorify Jesus. If you want to fireproof your faith, also know that Jesus is present in the furnace. And sometimes we don't even realize that he's present until we're in the furnace. We're forgetful. One of the names associated with Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us, the God who will never leave us or forsake us, so says Jesus in John 14 when he's talking about the, the Spirit. See, there's an extra special place in God's heart for his kids when they suffer. Parents in the room, you know when baby is sick and baby can't articulate and they're just moaning. You're okay with whatever snot you get on. You just come here. Come here. And there's an even more special place in the heart of God when his people are suffering for him. Blessed are when we are persecuted. Those sorts of things. Jesus says this. So Jesus is with you in the furnace. Do we have the faith to believe it? So whatever furnace you're sitting in right now, maybe the bills are piling up. The marriage is one-sided or worse. The temptation doesn't go away. The people, they've gone away. They have left. Your name's maligned. The fourth man wants to walk with you. He wants to untie you in the furnace so that your soul wouldn't be singed. Know that Jesus is present with you in the furnace. Uh, fourth point here about how to fireproof your faith. Know that Jesus ultimately rescues. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they're saved from the king. They're, they're, they're saved from the king's wrath. Uh, they, they needed the fourth man to do that. Otherwise, they're, they're extra crispy. But this is a preview of a much greater deliverance to come. There's a typology here. A preview of not just being saved from a tyrant that would live and die, but saved from the eternal wrath of God. Jesus, in Matthew 13, gives the parable of uh, the wheat and the weeds. Uh, It's a farming analogy that I think most of us as non-farmers, we can still get. Um, Life is one big field. Growing in the field is the wheat and the weeds, those who believe and those who don't. And uh, just like with agriculture, during the growing season, you don't pull out the weeds. You don't chop, chop them out. You might hurt the wheat. Uh, so it all stays there in the soil undisturbed. But at the end of the age, Jesus says, there's a harvest. The Son of Man will send out his angels, plural. See, this all kind of comes together when, you, when you're slowing down here. And he, the, the useful wheat is setting aside, and then they, like a lot of people, when they clear their fields, they, they burn the wheat. The wheat gets burned. So this is what happens, this cleanup at the end of the kingdom, and they're thrown, and Jesus says, into a blazing fire, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is hell if it's not a great big furnace? Sinners deserve the wrath of God, rightly. Because of our misplaced allegiance, We deserve to go to that furnace chiefly because we don't worship correctly. We take God's glory lightly. We've prioritized our own comfort, our advancement, our circumstances over him, over his name. We've given allegiance to the wrong authorities. We've just given allegiance to ourselves. We've treated ourselves as the one to serve. And we have not loved God for his own sake. Every single one of us is blemished in that way. Every single one of us is firebound in that way except for one of us, and that was Jesus. And the gospel says that Jesus saves his people from the ultimate furnace. The fourth man took the punishment that we deserved so we wouldn't even have to be singed, that we don't have to burn because he burned in the agony of separation from God. He burned weeping and sweating blood in the garden to the the sham trial, to being betrayed, to having a crown of thorns beaten into his head and dying and breathing his last, humiliated on a cross. That burning Jesus took so that we wouldn't have to, so that the wrath of God is satisfied, so that you and I would never go into the furnace. So, where does this land? Well, unlike Nebuchadnezzar's lifeless statue, um, someday, people of every tongue, tribe, and nation will come and they will fall down to Jesus. In Philippians, it says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The fourth man is the only one that can fireproof our faith, can fireproof and save our souls believe in that this morning let's pray Father God I thank you uh, that you come to us um, that old ancient stories are still relevant because they're inspired uh, because you are a timeless God Uh, I just pray God that you'll give us faith Um, I really want to pray for good circumstances for all of us that would be so nice such a blessing but we live in a fallen world and you're not uh, culpable for evil, sovereignty, though you, you allow it to happen. God, I just pray that we have uh, strong, fireproof faith. So I want to pray for my brothers and sisters right now that are in the, the harsh flames, the harsh furnace, God, that they would trust you, that you would seem real to them, that the fourth man would untie them, that they could walk with you now. May you give us a short-term deliverance from the traumas and all the things that we are experiencing now But may we rest assured in the eternal deliverance that awaits us in the future. In your name, amen.